Good evening. Hank, you didn't just pull that number out of the hat, did you? <laughs> so we're going to continue on in our study in Ecclesiastes, and I was saying before we we uh, began this evening, I was talking with uh, with with. Um, was it Hank, I think, and we we're saying, I, I think we're the only church that has ever gone through the book of Ecclesiastes twice. <laughs> Boy, we're brave. But when you, when you look at the book of Ecclesiastes, it's a, it's a, a book that where I think we can draw encouragement when the, it, we, we look at the wisest man that ever lived and the questions at the end of his life that he raised are, I'm sure, questions that we if we're honest with ourselves, that we, that we all ask from time to time. But he's asked them in a nice systematic way for us so that we can, um, we can draw, draw answers and wisdom from what he, what he wrestled with. And there's no doubt that the, this is a challenging book. And David McDonald's not here, but um, he sent out a, the email list um, before I chose this chapter, and there was only two slots left. And he said, which chapter would you like to do? <laughs> chapter 7, well, it is a difficult chapter, but, um, and, I, and I knew I was going to have uh, fun with it when I went through, I looked at four different commentators, and every one of them had a different approach to it. So it really forced me to go back and, and read through the book several times to try and uh, see what the, what the writer was trying to was trying to teach us through this through this chapter. Book of Ecclesiastes. Um, one thing that I noticed as I went through it, as I as I approached chapter seven, was Ecclesiastes has a number of similarities to the Book of Job. The Book of Job also wrestles with these hard questions of life. You know, why do things happen to us, and and how do we make sense of everything that's happening in the world and in our lives in particular? We, want, we, we make these observations of uh, uh, we're regarding prosperity, adversity, um, wisdom, um, choices that me people make, and the results of those choices. Why are some people affected in one way and other people another way? Where is there, where is there any justice? Where is there any, any um, sense to what is happening in the world around us? And... These are investigated in both of these books. We look at the hard questions of life, and its approach is that of drawing on life's experience, the experiences of someone that had seen and experienced much of what he discusses in both his own life. So Solomon experienced many of these things in his own life, but he also, he, was, he had an inquisitive mind, as, and he, he, watched, he looked at the lives of others, and he, and he had these questions about life. And he had a number of decades to observe life. This was at the end of his life. He had seen and he had tried everything under the sun, as we had seen in previous chapters. He had, he had tried, he had looked at science, tried to draw, some, make some sense of the natural world around him, philosophy, the various philosophies, pleasure, that didn't bring satisfaction materialism, he had experience, he was perhaps the wealthiest man that ever lived. He approached the world from the philosophy of fatalism, wealth, even religion. 
but none of these provided him any answer. And we, we see that phrase over and over again as we, as we look at this book. He had tried everything under the sun. This is, um, as, as David had, had gone over in that first, uh, the first week, under the sun is from, from the viewpoint, an earthly viewpoint, through the senses that we have, our worldly vantage point. See, we as, we as people, are, we're confined to time and space, and we, we perceive things through our five senses. Basically, we, what we see, what we hear, what we smell, as well as our emotions, we try to make sense of things. We look at, we tend to look at cause and effect. And we experience things through our, through our senses. But, the, but there's more than just the material world. And that's where, if we want to know anything spiritually, we're fortunate to have the Word of God. We can know nothing about other than what we see under the sun except by revelation. And even then, it's only as we, as we receive Christ as our Savior and the Spirit of God indwells us that we can see things from a heavenly perspective and we're able to then make sense of what we see under the sun, what we see from our earthly vantage point. Apart from divine revelation, our, our view of life is really limited to that which is under the sun. The natural person doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, it says in 1 Corinthians. And he's not able to understand them because these things are spiritually discerned. We can only have our understanding of spiritual things if we receive them by 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 spending time in God's Word. And even, even then, we have to be careful because we live in a world that rejects, reject, rejects Christ. And we're, we're subject to, to the philosophies around us as well. And we are, fed, we are fed these lines every day. We turn on the news. We listen to our coworkers. We talk to people. And if we're not in the Word of God, we were bombarded with the confusion that we see in the world today, a world that rejects Christ. The unbeliever is left to making sense of all that he hears and sees and experiences. And he comes up with, we come up with a number of philosophies, religions, coping strategies, escapes, etc. We're always looking for something new. And yet there is, we see, nothing new under the sun. All of, and I'm, think of um, Paul when he was uh, in Athens and he went through the marketplace on Mars Hill and that's where everybody met to discuss their new philosophies, their new, new ideas. And that's where when he preached the gospel, it was seen as a new thing, but it was that which provides provide salvation because there's nothing new under the sun, all the philosophies in, in, in Athens. And yet, when he brought up the, the subject of the resurrection from the dead, that was, the, that was what gives life. One of the things that I, I, one of the commentators I was looking at was um, 
a little book by Ray Stedman, and it was entitled, Is This All There Is to Life? And as I, as I looked at that title, I said, that rings a bell. And how many of you remember that song by Peggy Lee back in the 60s, Is That All There Is? Just, um, I just want you to listen to that for a moment, because as I, as I looked at the book of Revelation, these are haunting words. It's a pretty cynical view of life, isn't it? But believe it or not, that's what, if you look at the masses out walking the streets of our cities these nights, that's basically the view of life. Is that, is that all there is? And these are the questions that Solomon was asking for us to look at. He knew that that wasn't all there was, but he wanted to know what there was. And I think as we look at the book of Ecclesiastes and we wrestle with these questions, we see that the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. But let's look at these, these questions that are raised for us in, in, this, in this particular chapter. Because as believers, we actually live in two worlds. Let me explain. We, we experience what is common to man. We're not we're not exempt from the joys of life, the seasons that Clyde spoke of in chapter 3. There's a time to, to, to plant, a time to harvest. There's the joys we experience with our families. There's the hardships that we face with health, with finances, etc. We're not immune to those things. It is that which I think Jesus refers to in Matthew 5.45 where he says, He makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. Like everyone else, we live in time and space. We experience life as, as others do with the joys and sorrows. But we have, another, we have another perspective as well. We enjoy the salvation that we have in Christ. We know that God is sovereign. We know that he has a plan for, for this world, and he has a plan for us as individuals, we as part of this world. We know that everything is to glorify Christ in the end. So how do we, how do we reconcile these two in our lives? And I think as we go through chapter 7, hopefully that we will, we will be able to see this. One of the examples that I... That I I love to see is, is when we're going through things in life, hardships of life, that's where, we, where it requires faith. We, we see the adversity in front of us at the time. We know that God has a plan. All things work together for good, we're told, but we don't know the details in many of the cases. Many times we won't know for years to come. What is God preparing me for? Who is God preparing me for? Sometimes we may not know until... We're with the Lord. It's kind of like we're, we're the pilot, in, we're in a plane, and, and, and pilots, they can see what's happening around them. The fog rolls in, but they're flying by their instruments. They're flying by faith. The instrument is telling them where to go. They may have a sense that, catch a glimpse of something, saying, maybe I'm going the wrong way, but they're, they have to trust that instrument. And we, we know that as we put our faith in Christ, even though the circumstances may tell us otherwise, we have to keep our eyes on him, and he will, and he will bring us through. Let's begin by, let's just read those first, um, 
few few verses in chapter 7. You remember, let's, let's begin actually at that last verse of chapter 6, because really chapter 6 and the first half of chapter 7 are, are a unit. Last week we looked at, at prosperity and, enjoy, and enjoyment, and we saw how even, even enjoyment is a gift of God. The ability to enjoy, is even that is a gift of God. You see many people who have possessions and have wealth, and yet they... They have no enjoyment. Look at Hollywood right now and the entertainment industry, the, the, the turmoil you see people in. Um, what they will, what, what these, these young women went through just for their careers, just for what they thought they wanted, and, these, and those that took advantage of them, men of power and, and, and wealth as well. So we see that possessions, even the, even the ability to enjoy comes from, from, go, from God. And the, the writer of Ecclesiastes says, For who knows what is good for man in life, all the days of his vain life which he passes like a shadow? Who can tell a man what will happen after him under the sun? And then we go on to verse, chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of one's birth. Better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men. And the living will take it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by a sad countenance the heart is made better. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. For like the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool. For this also is vanity." Now I have to confess as we go through chapter 7, there's some, still some verses I'm uncertain exactly what Solomon is trying to say. But there is certainly a main thought throughout it. Everything comes into our life for a reason. That's one thing I do know. One thing we know from God's Word. Everything comes in for a reason and a purpose. Prosperity and adversity. We experience both. That's the lot of man. Unlike proponents of the prosperity gospel, Solomon discovers that adversity in many cases provides more benefit than prosperity. Sometimes we're better off. We learn more from adversity than we do those times when God seems to, or we would be saying, God is blessing me. But actually, sometimes it's a time in adversity that we actually learn more, or God has more to show us. And Solomon found that out. What we learn from each requires wisdom from God. And this is where we enter into the discussion. How do we gain or apply wisdom to do this? The common I th thread that I see is that whatever causes us to look up, to respond to God in faith and dependence, to cause us to know more of him, that's what's of value and ultimately provides meaning to life. So anything in life that causes us to look to the Lord and look to him, that's, that's what really is important and valuable in our life. In this chapter, you'll notice the, that the, there's sort of been a switch. What we're seeing here is that Solomon proceeds to communicate in the form of Proverbs. Therefore, we're beginning, we'll, we'll see here some comparisons, contrasts, similes that are characteristic of the Proverbs. Prior to this, he had 
spoken more in a bit of a dis discourse and raising questions and answers. But now we're looking at Proverbs. So we see those words better than, but, or for, for or as. So those comparison similes and things like that that we see in Proverbs. So all of, all of it's to direct us towards wisdom in responding to events in this life. Now, wisdom is also used a lot in this chapter, this looking to wisdom. And, and in the sense of, if, if you go back to Proverbs and you look at that word wisdom, it refers to um, skillful living or, or living according to God's, to, to a way that pleases God. So it's tied with righteousness. So when we see wisdom here, it's often tied with righteousness in that sense. So I'll make, I'll make that point as we go through in some of these, some of these verses. So Solomon has seen both in his life. He's seen both adversity and he's seen prosperity. And he's observed others as well. And prosperity, as we saw, doesn't always lead to enjoyment or satisfaction. Only God gives enjoyment, and it's, and it's limited to those that please him, as it, says, or as it says in Ecclesiastes 2, as we looked at a couple of weeks ago. It's to those that please him or trusted him. Those are the ones that please him or those who trust him or put faith in him. So in verse 1, we see that in these first six verses, actually, that present grief and pain may be more beneficial in their effect on us than partying, laughing, festivity, and prosperity. It starts by saying that a good name, which is really our, our reputation, Built over a lifetime, that's something that, that will last. That's of more value than, than it says, uh, uh, an ointment or a, or a fragrant ointment. An ointment is pleasant, it's pleasing to smell, but what happens? It fades. But a reputation built over a lifetime is something that lasts. Think of, think of Hebrews 11 for a moment. We have those men and women that who who experience adversity in their life almost all of those if you go through all the men and women in chapter 11 they one of them sawed in half <laughs> then we have Moses who who um, who who gave up all the riches of Egypt um, we have um, Abraham who left his home all of them made hard decisions but their reputation they are that cloud of witnesses that we see in Hebrews 11. So a good reputation built over a lifetime will last, but perfume fades. Verse 2, we look at in the place of sickness, death, or some other loss that, or seriousness. In this case, it's, it's a house of mourning, which we, we associate with a funeral. That it is better that, to be than in a place of festivity or partying. And why is that? It's because usually in a place of mourning, that's where we take things seriously. That's where we begin to look at the important things of life. That's where we look at eternal things. Things that are lasting. It's also there that we learn a lot about ourselves as well, isn't it? That's where we see our weakness, our vulnerability. That's where we see our own need in many cases. Is when we're in a place of, of seriousness. 
That's where we appreciate often what God has given us and who God has given us. Often when you're at a, at a funeral and you've lost someone close to you. Like, for example, I remember when I lost my mom. That's when I really appreciated my dad. That's when I appreciated my brothers and sisters. So those are important times for us. These things are rarely considered, let alone learned, learned in the house of, of, um, of feasting. And here, I think when we say feasting, partying is what, what he's alluding to. Not sitting around a Christmas table, enjoying each other's fellowship example, but this is in the place of, of partying. Why would sorrow be better than laughter? If you look at verse 3. For by a sad countenance, the heart is made better. It implies sober reflection on the brevity of life. Psalm 90 and 12 says, Teach us to number our days, that we may gain a heart of wisdom. But verse 10 before that says, Before, it says, The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength they are 80, yet in their, yet their boast is only labor and sorrow. Even if we live that full length of life, 70, if you're lucky, 80 years, we need to number our days. We need to make the most of them. We need to understand that God has a plan for our lives and, and God has a purpose. Does that mean we live there all the time? I mean, in that place of sorrow and, and reflection? No. But these times of trouble and adversity are important. When they're your lot, let them speak to you. Listen. You know, when, when, when we're going through trials, that's when we... Instead of that, woe is me, that's when we need to stop and say, what is God saying to me? What can I learn through this time? How can I use this so that I can be a blessing to someone sometime, another time? Otherwise, you know what happens if we don't approach them that way? We become cynical. We become bitter. And I think most of us, I, I know I, I can... I can attest to that in my own experience. If you don't deal with the trials that God's putting you in a way of trusting in him and, and walking by faith, we become very cynical and bitter. Verse 5, it says, It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of, fuels, of fools. And who doesn't like a good rebuke, hey? <laughs> My guess is no one. But these are important as they can lead to lasting and eternal change. You know, most people that, that rebuke you, if they're people that you know care about you, you know it's not easy for them to do that. Um, rebuke is often harder to give than to receive. So take it seriously when someone you know cares about you does rebuke you. Whereas the song of fools is like thorns under a pot. The cackling's impressive, 
you know, the noise of crackling fire. It's impressive. It can be soothing. It can make you feel good. I know that there's, they even make uh, tapes that you can listen to and fall asleep listening to the cackling of the fire. But it's temporary and it won't last. And that's like the person who butters you up and flatters you. It's better, the rebuke is much better. Moving on to verse 7, we, we see it says, Surely oppression destroys a wise man's reason, and a bribe debases the heart. The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. Wisdom requires vigilance. It's, it's not, you don't say, I've just become wise, and then that's it. Wisdom is something that we have to continue to to work at or study or stay in stay in God's word. Solomon found this out. He started out ruling in his kingdom as as the wisest man to rule a, to rule a country. And yet we see the decisions that he made as he as he fell into folly. So wisdom requires vigilant. You don't say I've arrived. And Solomon, he's a good case study studying that. And these verses seem to say that that wise men, if they're not careful, are subject to the enticement of prosperity. In other words, wisdom will often put you in a position where you may be asked to take a bribe, as it says here. So there's that enticement. Or wisdom may be derailed by adversity. You may be just because you're, you're, you're wise doesn't mean you're not subject to adversity. We have that admonition that in Proverbs from Solomon himself in verse four, in chapter four, where he says, guard your heart or keep your heart with all diligence for out of it are the issues of life. That's something as we go through life we come into all kinds of situations. If you're in business, I don't care what business you're in, there is always a situation that arises that if you're not careful, you can justify making any kind of choice. That's one thing. The heart is deceitful above all things, as, it's, as it says in Jeremiah, desperately wicked, in the sense that you can justify any decision you make if you're not looking to the Lord. Also, when you, when you um, come across time of adversity, it is very easy to, to make poor decisions as well if you're not looking to the Lord. So guard your heart. Even though we establish that there are lessons in, in adversity, if one has faith in God's sovereignty, there's also dangers in adversity if we look inward instead of looking outward to the Lord. It's very easy to go into that when, you, when you're in a situation of, of um, going through a difficult time of just withdrawing into yourself and just 
depending on your own strength or, or moving away from people that care about you. It's a time like that when you need, need fellowship of other believers and people to, to give you wise counsel. Or perspective. That's, that's often what it is, is perspective. And as believers, that's what we need to do with one another, with, for, with one another, is help with perspective. Because many times we, we see things, we, be, we withdraw and we begin to see things under the sun instead of seeing things from, from, the, from the advantage of, of faith in, God, in the Lord and knowing that he is sovereign and he is, he is using those situations in our lives. Verse 8. The other thing that we see that, that often will um, that derail us or anger, complaining about one's lot, and even looking back at the, at the good old days. How many have ever, ever fallen into that, <laughs> that rut of looking back and saying, I remember when, the good old days. But the problem with the good old days is you can't do anything about the past. Um, and often that's just selective memory anyways. But you can about the present. Living in the present requires trusting God and addressing your circumstances in a manner that pleases him. To live in the past is a form of escapism. But the Lord requires us to, to look at the present situation and trust in him. Solomon speaks further about wisdom in first in verse 11 learning to be wise and thoughtful about about life as benefits the I, idea here seems to be that we gain wisdom through adversity and it has great advantage in helping us deal with further adversity so verse 11 it says wisdom is good with an inheritance and profitable to those who see the sun for wisdom is a defense as money is a defense, but the excellence of knowledge is that wisdom gives life to those who have it. Difficult verse, no doubt, but I think what, what Solomon is saying here is that we gain wisdom through adversity, and it becomes a protection to us, just like in the in the in the physical world, often it, it, it allows us to do things that we wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Well, wisdom as we face adversity and as we trust in the Lord prepares us for the future. As, as, as God allows things into our lives, many times that's what he is doing. He is preparing you for the future, whether it's to be a blessing to someone else who also um, faces what you fa have faced or... or um, He's just making you more Christ-like in, in your approach to life. But that's often what, what, um, what adversity does. Verse um, 13 and 14 are kind of a concluding section, a statement for this section on the problems of prosperity and adversity. Let's just look at those two verses. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? 
In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider. Surely God has appointed the one as well as the other, so that man can find out nothing that will come after him. We're reminded in those two verses, again, that God is sovereign. He dispenses both of them, prosperity and adversity, and we have no right to dispute the wisdom of what he's chosen. So in the day of prosperity, it says be joyful, but in the day of adversity, consider. Adversity has inscrutable purposes beyond our finite understanding. That's where faith comes in. The next few verses, I have to admit, are are difficult verses, but here is what I think Solomon is saying after we look at a number of the interpretations. Just look at, um, beginning at verse 15, I've seen everything in my days of vanity. There is a just man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in wickedness. Do not be overly righteous, nor be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Do not be overly wicked, nor be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It is good for you to grasp this, and also not remove your hand from the other, for he who fears God will escape them all. What I think he's saying is that he has seen over the course of his life a troubling observation. And this is what Solomon has seen, first of all. He has seen there are righteous people who seem to perish in their righteousness. And there are wicked people who seem to prolong their life living in their evil doing. So what Solomon, I think he's saying, is he's urging the the reader not to depend on on their righteousness or, or their own wisdom to gain blessing because they might be confounded or disappointed, dismayed, like the righteous people whom Solomon had seen perishing, perishing despite their righteousness. So let me let me just see if I can explain what I'm thinking here. We experience all that is common to man. The joys of life, the season, whoops, I'm, just lost my spot here, sorry about that. What Solomon was saying here, I'll go without my notes, (laughs) is that we we see people that seem to, despite their righteousness, suffer. And we see those that, despite their wickedness, seem to prosper. But God has his own purposes in in allowing these things in our life. And we have no right to question what he's doing 
because we know by faith that he cares about us. We know that he is sovereign, that he has a plan for this world. We know that he will be glorified. He'll be glorified through our lives. And he cares about us. So despite what we apparently see, we can trust him. He is in control. I think that's what he is actually trying to say here. So don't just depend on your own wisdom, looking at the situation and saying, that righteous person, he's not getting what he deserves. No, that wicked person, he's not getting what he deserves. God is sovereign, and he's in control. The fact that God did not punish in some cases, shouldn't be taken as a license to sin. He's saying, you may die before your time. And he's also saying the fact that God did not reward someone in their righteousness does not mean that he doesn't care or that he's uncaring. He's advocating living life in light of God's judgment. The only uncertainty about God's judgment is its timing. That's in God's hands, so people should avoid the folly avoid folly and wickedness, and live wisely and righteously as possible. In verse 19 to 22, Solomon recognizes the universality of sin. These are, again, another hard portion. Um, Let me read it, and we're almost finished, but let me just read this section, the whole section through to the end. Wisdom strengthens the wise more than ten rulers of the city. For there is not a just man on earth who does good and does not sin. Also, do not take to heart everything people say, lest you you hear your servant cursing you. For many times also your own heart has known that even you have cursed others. All this I have proved by wisdom. I said I will be wise, but but it was far from me. As for that which is far off and exceedingly deep, who can, find it out? who can find it out? I applied my heart to know, to search and seek out wisdom and the reason of things, to know the wickedness of folly, even of foolishness and madness. And I find more bitter than death the woman whose heart is snares and nets, whose hands are fetters. He who pleases God shall escape from her, but the sinner shall be trapped by her. Here is what I have found, says the preacher adding one thing to the other to find out the reason, which my soul still seeks, but I cannot find. One man among a thousand have I found, but a woman among all these I have not found. Truly this only I have found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. I'm sure I don't have to expound on that. Everybody's got that, understands that. It is a very difficult passage, I must admit. But one thing... Solomon, I'll just highlight the things that Solomon points out here. Number one, he recognizes here the universality of sin. There's not a righteous man that doesn't sin. That's, we know that from Romans. We know that from our own observation, really, if we're honest with ourselves. We know our own hearts. We see it in the world around us. There is none righteous fully that doesn't sin. Do not, but he's saying, don't be blind to your own sin either. The wisest man in the world, he sought out wisdom. He did. And, and what did he find out? As, as much as he tried 
to be wise, he found that even he had this one particular weakness. And we find, oh, you just have to go to, to the, um, to the old to the books of Scripture. We see Solomon and his difficulty with women, and they were a temptation to him his whole life. They led him; as, he was led astray by, by going after the many wives and con- concubines he had. So he knew the, the, the foolishness of, of sin and the universality. He, in verse 23 to 29, we see some of his introspection. He laments regarding his own quest for wisdom. And he really desired to seek wisdom and to avoid sin, but he found there was a certain problem that, that it was at work with him, within him, a flaw that ensnared, ensnared him despite all that he knew was true. How many of us can say the same thing? You know, despite what we know that's true, despite what we know what God expects and wants of us, we find ourselves, and, and we go to Romans chapter 7, we see Paul's wrestling with it. He knew, what, he knew what he wanted in the inner man, but the flesh was, was there at battling with, with what he knew to be right. We see that same battle with with, um, with, Sol- with um, Solomon here as well. But Paul, at least, but Paul had the solution. We see at the end of Romans 7 where he says, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And he said, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the one that can deliver us. We, because we have the advantage of looking back at the cross. Solomon, he knew that, he knew that God was sovereign, but he didn't have the power to, to the power to live that life that we have the advantage of. We know that Christ has died for us, that He has risen, and that we have His resurrection life. If we put our faith in Him, we have the power of the Holy Spirit to help us live that life that God that that we know that that God desires of us. This this is where where Solomon saw he's, he he saw that despite. His, his um, search for wisdom, he had this weakness. And as he looked around him, he saw that there wasn't one in a million who was righteous. And this, this has been a difficult um, verse where he says, he looked out among the men and he saw maybe one in a thousand. That's like saying one in a million. But the way the Hebrew is here when he says that he didn't find any among women, he that's just a couplet, a, way, a figure of speech in, in the Hebrew where he's, he's basically saying that there's really nobody. There's none at all among men and, men and women is really is what he's saying here. Because we, we know Solomon's view of women. He wrote Proverbs 20, 31, the virtuous woman. Who can find a virtuous woman? And it's and of, of great value. So we know that that wasn't his view of women, that there was one righteous man and no women. It was, he is basically saying here that as he looks out above, above the masses of, of people and all that he knew, there was none righteous. He couldn't find one. But he knows that God had created man with a purpose. He, as he says in that last verse, he says, but God has made man upright. He, God created man in, in his own image. Man fell into sin. Man has gone after his own schemes. But God is righteous. And we know that God provided the means of salvation for us through Christ. And through him, that's how we that's how we are able to live a life that is pleasing to the Lord Jesus, to God. This is a difficult chapter, no doubt. But one thing that we find in it is that 
God is sovereign. That God, whether he gives us prosperity or whether we find ourselves in adversity, God has a lesson for us in that. God has a purpose in that. And it is not vanity. It is not just chasing after the wind. It's not just a puff of smoke. God's, everything that God brings into our life is there for a reason. Everything that God brings into our life is to be a blessing to us and a blessing to others. Many, many times those things we will not know until we're home in glory with him. Some things we, we're blessed to find out a year down the road. That's why God brought that into my life. But most of the times, we'll find out when we're in heaven. So let's just pause and give him thanks. Father, we do thank you for this difficult book. This book that is one of those books where the rubber hits the road, where we, we faced many of these situations that Solomon addresses in this book. We've observed the same things. We've asked the same questions. Maybe we haven't verbalized them. Maybe we haven't discussed them with someone else. But they're in our minds. We, we wrestle with them anyways. Lord, we thank you that as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that unlike that song that we heard, we don't have to say, is that all there is? Because we know that it isn't. We know that we have a, a Savior in the Lord Jesus, one who loved us enough to die for us on the cross. And we thank you that he rose again. And just as he lives in newness of life, we also are raised together with him in heavenly places. That we can have a, a perspective on everything that's happening in our lives that is different from those who are just living under the sun. Lord, that we can see things from a higher plane. Lord, many times it's difficult. We just see through our, our five senses, but help us, Lord, to see things through the eye of faith that we might know that you are indeed working in our lives, that you care for us, and that you love us, and that everything that you allow to enter into our experiences is for our own good. And Lord, we pray that you would use those things not only for our own good, that we might be a blessing to others as well. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.